You know, I, I absolutely love being, a, being back. It's so, it's so fun to go somewhere like Costa Rica and see what God is up to and, and, you know, kind of be out of your comfort zone. But it is so wonderful to get to come back home and see family that, you know, I was about to say that we're not blood related. And then I realized, I guess, because of Jesus, we are blood related. So, um, interesting. Anyway, so this is, I don't know about you, but this is like one of my, or my, my top favorite time of the year. Christmas time. I love that the weather changes a little, not a lot. I really enjoy watching the Christmas snowstorms on the news, <laughs> wearing sandals and drinking hot chocolate, you know. Um, I love the lights. I love driving up and down the streets with my boys and seeing the Christmas lights on people's homes. I love walking into a home with the Christmas tree up and smelling the pine inside. I, I love that Vons has peppermint ice cream this time of year. One time a year, so I'm just gorging in Jesus' name. <laughs> and, and yet, if I'm honest with you guys, it's, this is also probably the most hectic time of the year. And not only as a pastor, but just as a, as a follower of Jesus, because this time of year gets crazy. Can I get an amen? I mean, would you agree? Um, You've got to figure out presence begins... It used to begin the day after Thanksgiving. Now it begins the second half of Thanksgiving for whatever reason. Then you've got to figure out how to you know, keep the presents from everybody. Make sure you got everybody. You've got to take pictures for the card that you're going to send out to people to remind them that you're still alive. Then you've got to figure out how to get it to them. Thankfully, my wife enjoys doing that. Um, you've got to go get a Christmas tree. You've got to set the thing up. You've got to get the house totally decorated. Then you've got 40 million places you've got to be both throughout the month as well as on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. You're just running all over the place. And by the end of it, at least for myself, half the time I come crashing into Christmas afternoon. Kathy and I are just wiped out on the couch. Our house looks like a Christmas cyclone has gone through there. Every single dish we own is stacked to the ceiling in the sink. It looks like a wrapping paper bomb went off in our living room. My boys are playing with whatever treasure happened to catch their fancy. And my wife and I are just going, oh, thank goodness it's over. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt that way, right? (laughs) And I can't help in moments like that, but feel like somehow, yet again, I've missed the point. I've allowed presents and parties to supplant the true meaning of Christmas. And that's why we need tangible reminders. That's why we have Advent. Advent simply means coming. It is a time to to remember the fact that Jesus Christ has come and Jesus Christ is coming again. That's what this whole season is about, is celebrating the greatest gift that has ever been given to us. And toward that end, I don't know about you, but I need tangible reminders. And we have, a, we have a bunch of them. For instance, Christmas trees are a tangible reminder of this season. Now, we've stolen Christmas trees. It was more of a pagan thing initially. It, it, was, it was in those places where winter hits really hard, where all the trees die, all of the greenery disappears, snow covers the ground. People in those kind of climates would cut evergreen boughs or sometimes they would cut entire trees and bring them into their home as a tangible reminder that winter will pass, spring will come. Well, we have stolen that, just like we stole Christmas fair and square, and we've said, okay, this, let's repackage what this means. We bring these trees in as a tangible reminder that the winter of our spiritual discontent will pass. 
And we will have a spiritual rebirth or spring when Jesus Christ comes once and for all to inaugurate his kingdom. And there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more death. That's what those Christmas trees have come to mean for us. And then we wrap those things in lights and we wrap our homes in light. And each of those lights for Christ followers is a reminder of that first light that was kindled on Christmas. A a light that was kindled in a feeding trough and became the light of the world. And so we put lights in our homes to remind us of the light that has entered into our world and we want to then shine as that light in the darkness as well. And we also light candles. This is something that we do here and maybe some of you do at home. These candles both remind us of Jesus, the light that has come into this world, but it also reminds us of different postures and things about this season. So the first candle that we lit here last a couple weeks ago was the candle of hope. And, and that makes sense. I mean, Jesus, because of Jesus, we have hope that the brokenness in this world doesn't get the last word. That doesn't matter if we're struggling with cancer, doesn't matter if we're struggling with depression, doesn't matter if we're struggling with a broken relationship. That does not get the last word. Even death, even the grave doesn't get the last word. That's the hope that we have in him. And then... The second one that we lit, and I don't know if I'm going out of order here, but this is a candle of joy. Last week, we just got to be joyous. I thank you guys that you put up with me getting to come up here and sing. It's just, let's just have fun, right? No, I promise you that is not going to become a regular occurrence. But we just want to have fun and celebrate the fact that in Jesus, we who were once lost are welcomed home again. We're prodigals that when, we, when our father sees us, he runs towards us and throws his arms around us and says, my son, my daughter is home. Let's party. And that's what we do. We get to have joy because of what Jesus has done for us. This week, we're going to focus on the candle of love. That makes sense. Come on. Share the love. Why love? I can't think of a more tangible example of God's love for us than this. While we were, while mankind was still racked by a, a, a need to be autonomous. While we were still caught up in needing to say, I'm the captain of my own ship, thank you very much. I will do it myself. Yes, we have disobeyed. Yes, I've fallen short. I don't care. And in the midst of that posture, God sent his son, the divine logos, through which he spoke all of existence, all of creation into being. He sent that divine word to take on human flesh become a baby, but he didn't, sit, he didn't stay a baby. He grew into a man. He experienced pain. He experienced heartbreak. He experienced temptation. He experienced everything we have experienced and yet was without sin. And then he intentionally and willingly walked to the cross to die on it for us so that anyone who puts their faith in him doesn't have to experience eternal death, which is simply separation from God. Instead, we can experience an eternal 
life of living with him, what, what scripture calls eternal life. And so the manger scene is, to me, a picture of God's undying, undeserved love for us. And we all know John 3.16, so I'd love it if you guys would join me in reading this as a reminder of God's love for us. Can we throw it up on the board? Or not? You know it. Ready? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the hope that we have. And it is a joyful thing for us to begin to remind that, or to be reminded of that, because of what Jesus did for us. He died so we could live. This was just the beginning of the story. Easter is really the culmination of it. But we celebrate that God was willing to take on flesh. Um, One more thing that my family uses in our home as a tangible reminder of this time and what the meaning of Christmas is about is one of these, I I believe they're called creches. It's a, a French word for cradle, and it's come to mean the manger scene that many of you guys probably have in your house. But as Lee pointed out last week, our picture of the manger and, and that first silent night of, of Christmas is probably pretty romanticized and pretty sanitized. Because last time I checked, there's animals involved and this was taking place in a barn. So although scripture's kind of silent on what, was, what it really smelled like in there, I can guarantee you it was not an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Right? And, then, and then I look at the faces of the people in here. I take Mary, for instance, this woman who hours before gave birth to the Son of God. She looks like she just got back from, you know, getting her hair done. She looks all nice. Her dress is nice and pressed. She's just got this serene look. I'm sorry, my wife had two children. She looks nothing like that. <laughs> but Mary, she's, she's totally good. That was like the easiest birth process ever. And then there's Joseph. Now, Joseph kind of gets a raw deal in here because he is the other half of this partnership in raising the son of God. And yet Joseph, we don't ever talk about the poor guy. We don't really know a whole lot of what was going on in his mind. His face in this particular manger scene is one of total peace, but I can only imagine that that was probably not what was really going on in his mind. As he looked at the son of God that had just been birthed by his fiance or his wife at this point, and him realizing, I'm a dad, and God's the father, and he's entrusted him to me, and what am I going to do? And I've got, got these smelly shepherds showing up, and then, and then who are these wise guys showing up with? What's going on? Right? I think one of the reasons why we don't spend a lot of time talking about Joseph on Christmas is because there's not a single quote of his anywhere in Scripture. We never hear his words at all. And yet, if you go to the book of Matthew, which I'm going to invite you to do, go to Matthew chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, they should be in the front uh, or underneath the, the chair in front of you if you don't have one. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those. Um, if you have lots of Bibles, you can bring one. I don't care. But, but if you don't have a Bible, take it home. We would much rather you have one than not have one. But in Matthew chapter 1, we get a picture of some of the internal process going on for Joseph, not just on the night that Jesus was born, but in this whole process leading up to it. And I want us to take a look at that. 
Now, Matthew opens, as, as the Gospel of Luke does as well, with a genealogy. And that genealogy is purposeful. This particular genealogy starts with Abraham, the one that God basically says, hey, Abraham, leave, your, leave everything you know, your people, your family, and the place that you were born, and come with me. I'm going to lead you to a place. I'm going to make you a great kingdom. I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all nations. And from Abraham, that, that blessed to be a blessing message was passed on from generation to generation down to King David, who became, for Israel, the greatest king in their history. And God promised David, you will never cease to have a king on the throne. You will have a son who who basically will be an eternal king. On down through Joseph to Jesus. And Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise to David. And that's what Matthew is showing with that genealogy. And then he gets to Joseph and Mary, and this, how, how this whole thing went down, mainly from Joseph's perspective. So here's where I want to camp a little bit today, just to shed, to put some flesh on, on this Christmas picture that we're so familiar with. This is how the birth of Jesus, I'm in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, Jewish weddings are slightly different from ours. Today, you meet somebody, you date for a while, you say, she's the one, he's the one. You get engaged, then you do some premarital, you, you, you plan the wedding, then you get married. And at that point, you become legally unified. Before that, even if you're engaged, if you just go, yeah, this isn't working out, you part ways, no big deal. Okay, big deal, but still less big deal than in a Jewish way of approaching it. Because the Jews recognized marriage to begin the moment that two people were pledged to be married. That engagement, that was like the marriage. Mom and, you know, two parents would go, hey, I really think our kids would get along well. Or what probably more often happened is, hey, we would like to continue to do life together as families, so let's go ahead and marry our kids together. They would, the parents would sign a contract with one another that the kids would get pledged. Then the two children, or sometimes it would be an adult and a child, sometimes it would be two, whatever, you know, they, they would basically agree, okay, we're going to marry one another. This is really weird because I haven't chosen this and I haven't been prepared at all for it. And then a season would pass. They have been pledged to be married, but they are not yet fully married. They have not, uh, you know, made it official They haven't had a wedding yet, but in the eyes of the law, they are married. Meaning that if the the boy dies in this instance, the girl would be made a widow. And the only way to break this contract would be through a certificate of divorce. They are legally united. Which means then... That this season, this, it, it was oftentimes a year where the guy would go off and they would be planning this week-long wedding. They would, he would be preparing a house for them to live in, which was often just building a room in addition to his parents' house. And then he would come back and get his wife. And that, that year or more in between the contract being signed and them getting married was a time for them to prepare their hearts, was a time to show their, their purity and, and their commitment to one another. 
And Joseph comes back to see his, his fiancée, who is also kind of already covenanted to him, and she says, I'm pregnant. And imagine the dagger to the heart that that would have been to him. Here I have been preparing a place. Here I have been preparing this great celebration. And you've been fooling around? How would you feel? Hurt? Betrayed? Probably angry? All those things? But, but that's not it. I mean, because she goes, oh, wait, wait, wait. I may be pregnant, but I'm still a virgin. Yeah. All right? I know how these things work, and that's not how it works. Ooh, God did it, she says. And at this point, I'm sure he's probably going, I would love to believe that. I would love to believe that God, out of all of the people in Israel that he could choose, would single out a teenage girl in some Galilean backwater and say, I want you to be the mother of the Messiah. I would love to think that. But who are we? Who are you? Who am I? I don't believe it. A better explanation of this is that you've been fooling around with somebody else behind my back and you are too cowardly to tell me. So yeah, okay. God's the father. Great. And Joseph begins to wrestle with, how do I, how do I proceed here? What do I do? And he comes up with what he feels is the best course of action. Let's look at verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. She's pregnant. Ergo, she has had sexual relations with somebody. Therefore, it wasn't me. She has cheated on me. She is an adulteress. Therefore, I can't marry her. I can't do it. She has broken the covenantal contract that we made. And as much as it hurts me, I, I can't walk into this marriage with her. And yet, although he was an upright man who respected the law of Moses, he was also a man of compassion. Because he thinks to himself, I don't want to throw her under the chariot here. Right? I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to publicly do this in such a way that it makes her, it destroys her life so that I can protect my own name. And so he decides, I'm, I'm going to divorce her, but I'm going to do it quietly. We're going to just try to do this amicably to part ways so that she can go on with her life and I can go on with mine. That's the best plan he can come up with at the time. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Jesus means God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, which they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Can you imagine as Joseph wakes up having had this vision of an angel telling him what Mary has been telling you is true? And I'm sure that there was probably some elation, like she hasn't been lying to me. She hasn't been cheating behind my back. Does this mean I'm the one who has to apologize here? But anyway, she's not been cheating on me. And yet 
as much as there was probably some elation, there was also probably some like, oh crud moment here. That means that this is the long awaited, that this Messiah we've been waiting for for centuries as a people. And my fiance is carrying him. And that means that I'm supposed to be the father to him. I, obviously, I'm not the father, but I'm going to a, adopt him and raise him. Who am I? What do I have to offer the future king of Israel? What do I have to offer God's anointed redeemer of his people? I'm a carpenter. I would imagine that Joseph probably felt pretty inadequate to the task because he was inadequate. And yet, he's willing to obey. Take a look at verse 24. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. However, he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. A couple of things going on here I want to unpack. First off, Joseph kind of sped up this whole process of marriage. It was like, hey, we're going to get married at some point. I'm preparing the wedding. She's pregnant Let's get married now. Can you imagine the rumor mill that would have started? Oh, Joseph and Mary couldn't wait. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah, they say it was God. Sure it was. Sure it was. And yet, Joseph trusted God more than he feared the words of other people, more than he feared the negative opinions of other people. So, Let the rumor mill spin out of control. I'm going to marry this girl. And I'm going to take her home to be my wife. And yet, I'm not going to have sex with her. Not until she's had this child because they were trying to preserve the miracle that was Christ's virgin birth. So I won't consummate this marriage. She will be my wife. We will live together. But I will not consummate this marriage until she's had this child. And then Joseph does something really, really powerful. We already know that God gave Joseph the name Jesus to name him. As Lee pointed out last week, that means God saves because he was planning on saving his people through him. But it's Joseph who who names Jesus. It is Joseph that gives him that name. And this is important because in Jewish culture, only the father had the right to name the child. And in so naming Jesus, Joseph takes responsibility and ownership over his little family. He is in a part adopting Jesus as his son to raise him. And that's huge. Because Joseph probably felt utterly inadequate and it cost him quite a bit socially to do it the way he did it. But he was willing to submit to God regardless of the cost, regardless of how inadequate he felt because this is what God told him to do. He was a man. If you think about it, could God have done better? On one hand, yes. He could have chosen a better father for his son. He could have chosen somebody with far more power, far more prestige, far more connected, far more educated, far more spiritually educated. He could pick a rabbi. And yet, look at the man that God chose. It was a man that we've already seen took the law of Moses seriously, 
a man that was also compassionate and was willing to provide grace even when he had been hurt himself. That reflects the heart of our God. A man who was willing to submit and obey regardless of the cost. And God goes, you know what? I don't look at the outside. I look at the inside. I look at the heart. And this guy's got it. He doesn't rest on what he's done. He doesn't rest on what he's got. He doesn't rest on his title and say, that's who I am. He simply is a follower of me. And so Joseph says, yes, I will become the adoptive father of the Messiah, of God's son. That's heavy. But apparently he did pretty well. Can we throw that quote from Ray Pritchard up there for a second? Apparently he did pretty well, because this is what Ray Pritchard says. When Jesus grew up and began his ministry, he chose one word above all others to describe what God is like. He called him Father. And where did Jesus learn about fathers? From Joseph. Joseph became the example. And it's, we call God Father. Our perspective of God is affected by our family of origin, and particularly the fathers that we've had, for better or for worse. Joseph was the example of a father to his son. Now, I want for just a moment for us to step back, and I'm going to get off the stage. A couple of weeks ago, we listened to Mary's song. It's powerful. But I feel like Joseph deserves a song as well. And this is a song written from Joseph's perspective as he looks at this newborn baby. So let's go ahead and listen to this. How could it be this baby in my
So what, right? So Joseph, some nobody carpenter from Nazareth by way of Bethlehem, um, becomes the adoptive father to Messiah. And you know, what I love about his story is that he joins a long, long list of completely ill-equipped and unworthy men and women who were used by God to bring about his purpose and his plans. He joined his ancestor David, who was the youngest son of his father Jesse. So young and so green and so ill-equipped that when Samuel the prophet comes to anoint the future king of Israel... Jesse brings all the other sons forward. But he, he forgets about Joseph out in the field tending the sheep because he couldn't possibly be it. And yet again, God doesn't look at the external, he looks at the heart. And Joseph joined the disciples, a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of, of you know, if they had gone to seminary, that, you know, if they had gone to try to become rabbis, they'd washed out. They'd gone back to the family business, fishing. You know, one guy was a tax collector, which were about as popular then as they are now. One of them was a zealot. Basically, his job was, I'm going to advance the kingdom by trying to shank people. And these are the people that Jesus says, come, follow me, learn from me. Because eventually, I'm going to go back to be with the Father. And you are going to be my representatives. And you are going to take what I have been planting in your heart and you're going to share it with other people. And my kingdom will be built upon your shoulders. Joseph joined Mary, a teenage nobody, from some podunk town in Galilee. And these two were entrusted with God's son with the future king of Israel, with the redeemer of mankind. And I love that because it's a reminder to us that if he can use them, he can use us. You don't have to turn here, but I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because he gets to the heart of the audacity of our God, who uses imperfect people to carry out his perfect plan. 
Paul says this in verse 26 of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many, were of wise, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not in order to nullify the things that are so that no one, no one can boast before him and bang their chest and say, look what I've done for you. I love the story of Joseph because God can use him, he can use us. And he does. God isn't looking for a seminary degree. He's not looking for somebody with a tremendous amount of wealth. He's not looking for somebody who is a great public speaker. He's not looking for somebody who has it all together and has lots of connections or even is the most beautiful by the standards of this world. He is simply looking for people who stand and say, here I am, Lord, help yourself to my life. Whatever you want, I'll do it. I will follow you because I trust you more than I fear other people. And he has a, a tendency to use us, to bring about his purpose and his plans. However, here's a caution for those of us who are open to God using us. If and when he does, it will oftentimes not be in the way we would have expected, <laughs> and it probably won't be at the best timing that we would have chosen. Take Mary and Joseph, for instance, the, the parents to God's son probably would not have chosen for her to get pregnant while they were still engaged and have all of that chatter going on. Certainly would not have chosen to have to make a 90-mile trek from Nazareth down to Bethlehem in the dead of winter while she's ready to pop so that they could go and be there for some census, for some Roman leader that they have never met, never would meet. They certainly would not have chosen to take such a long time getting there, perhaps because they didn't even own a donkey, by the way. They weren't very wealthy. Would not have chosen to take such a long time getting there that when they finally got there, all the rooms and all of the inns were taken. So they're forced to give birth to God's son in a barn using a feeding trough to lay him in. And yet God used each of those things to bring about not only his purpose and his plans, but to fulfill tons and tons of prophecies that had been spoken centuries before. And even the place that Jesus was born has meaning. We'll talk about that on Christmas Eve. The importance of the fact that he was born in a barn. So you say, God, I want you to use me. Just be warned. It may not necessarily always happen the way you would have expected, and it probably won't happen in the timing you would have anticipated. Let me give you one example. Right before I went to Costa Rica, my aunt and uncle, Dale and Judy, said, hey, we just want to let you know, so, so you don't hear from other people. We're, we're, we, for some reason, God has kind of laid Payson, Arizona on our heart. We have no idea why. We're going to go check it out. We're just going to go for a weekend, scout the land kind of thing. Sometime in the future, God may lead us there. Cool, have fun. Kisses. They left. I left. 
While I'm in Costa Rica, I get an email from Judy. Well, God has certainly been active. He led us out to Payson, and in the matter of two days out there, we got connected with a church community of which we had connections all over the place with people there. Dale was prayed over and had some partial healing from his Parkinson's, which was a further confirmation. We felt as if God was saying, you've arrived to where I'm calling you next. Then we started looking at some homes. Not only did we find exactly the right one, but we put in an offer which was accepted. And so now we are in escrow on a home in Payson, Arizona. Then we came home and said, well, God, we have this house here. What are we going to do? It was sold in two days. I guess we're moving to Payson. And God picked up the pace from what they anticipated. So rather than, I mean, because you have to understand, Dale and Judy have been a blessing to this church for the last several years that they've been here. An absolute gift. It's been a joy for me to have my aunt and uncle here, to get to know them better. They have been utter prayer warriors here. And they had plans to do even more stuff. Dale was going to be leading a a financial um, class starting in January. They had plans of more ministry to do. Really good things. But God had a different plan. And so as much as it grieves me that we won't get to spend every Sunday together praying upstairs before church and, and just having them here as people I can lean on. But I celebrate that God's moving. And I want them to be right in the middle of it. And even if his timing is not the same as their timing, we celebrate that. Because we have never been called to to grip our blessings as if they belong to us alone. Every single one of you sitting in these seats today are a gift from God. You are part of what makes Lighthouse Community Lighthouse Community. A church is not a building. A church is the people. And you make this church. But we have to constantly remember that God is in control. He is the head of this church. And if he says, hey, Lloyd, I need you to go here, then I hope that you will listen to him. He's not saying that, by the way, right now. He might be, but you need to hear that from him, not from me. If God has a plan to lead you elsewhere, then we as your church family want to celebrate that and send you. As opposed to trying to hold on just a little longer. We, want to, we have been blessed to be a blessing, and the, you guys, the people of Lighthouse Church, are the best blessing that we have. So if God wants to use one of you to advance his kingdom somewhere else, yay God. And of course, this is always home. Dale and Judy, you can always come back, and you can continue to pray for us from a distance. We need it. But I'd ask that you just stand up for a moment right where you're at. Where are you? By the way, yes, stand up. Come on. Okay. Yeah. We're family, so here's what we're going to do. This is what we do in our small group. We're going to do it right now. I want my family to surround my aunt and uncle right now. Would you guys just stand up, put a hand on them? If you're over here, you can just extend a hand. And we got time, so we're going to do this right. So we call this in my small group Korean prayer. I have no idea if this is true or not, but we believe that they all kind of pray out loud at the same time. God makes sense of it all. We are going to pray out loud for Dale and Judy all together. And then I'll close this in just a moment. Let's go ahead and start praying. 
Father, we thank you for Dale and Judy. We thank you for the gift that they are a man and a woman who are utterly devoted to you. And I thank you for the ways you have been shaping and plotting their course. They had different plans, and you just sped up that process. And I thank you for what you're doing, what you've already done, and how you will use this move. I pray that you would go ahead of them and prepare that place. I pray that you would be with them in the midst of it, guiding every step, keep them safe in that trip out there. I pray you would come behind and the, 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 the seats that they empty, but more so, they, they are spiritual warriors. And I pray that you would raise up out of your body more people who will join with them. Yet the Bible says that unless a seed, a kernel of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it cannot sprout. I pray that in their place you would raise up dozens of men and women who will be prayer warriors here and you would bless this community that you're leading them to to be prayer warriors there. Father, nothing that we have is ours alone. It is a gift from you and it has been entrusted to us. We are merely stewards and we have been stewards of Dale and Judy for a season. Thank you for the blessing of that time. Would you glorify yourself through them and continue to have your way with us? Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Thanks, guys. One last thought, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up right now. One last thought as we... um, as we go into a time of response, and that is we often look at a moment, and we think our lives are defined by moments, right? And and I want to be used by God, therefore, God, I want you to do something radical with me, something that would be world-shaking. And for sure, for, for Joseph and Mary, that night has reverberations that are felt to this day. And yet, what followed that silent night was days and weeks and months and years of obedient worship, changing dirty diapers, midnight feedings, uh, cleaning scraped knees, pulling splinters from that fledgling little carpenter Jesus' fingers, teaching him how to talk to a girl, teaching him how to talk to his Father in heaven. As we talked about about a month and a half ago, when we did that series on, um, you know, the cumulative effect, we often think that our lives are defined by moments, and when in fact our lives are more often defined by the the little choices that we make, day after day, week after week, year after year. The trajectory of our lives is shaped by those cumulative choices. And Joseph and Mary didn't just choose to trust God for a day. They chose to trust him for their lives. They said, Jesus, I'm sorry, they said, God, we submit our lives to you. And the invitation to us is the same. If you want to be used by God, it is not merely an act of saying, Jesus, come into my life, save me. In the same breath, it's Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life as well. So that not just this moment, but every moment that comes after this would be shaped by you. I've tried to be the captain of my own ship and I've done a pretty mediocre job of it. 
I want you to have your way. Or perhaps I try to be the captain of my own ship. I've been doing pretty well. But I don't want what I want. I want what you want. So God, would you, would you not only save me from my sins, save me from myself, but would you use me to advance your kingdom purposes, not just now, but every single moment of my life? That's the invitation. Not to a moment, but to a lifetime of following him. Remember, Jesus never said, pray this prayer and you'll be with me. No, he said, follow me. So I'm going to invite you to to pray the same thing right now. This is a prayer, both of Jesus, thank you for dying for me, but it is mainly a prayer of Jesus. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to have your way with me. So if you bow your heads with me, I'm going to pray this. And if this echoes the cry of your heart, then I invite you to pray it along with me. Jesus, I thank you that you chose to take on flesh and walk as a human in this broken world. I thank you that you've experienced pain so that you can understand what we experience. And I thank you that you were willing to die so that I could live. I invite you to not only cleanse me of my sins, but I invite you to be the the Lord of my life, the captain of my ship. I invite you to call the shots. And I confess, God, I'm probably going to try to grab the reins back from you from time to time. Would you protect me in those moments? Holy Spirit, would you check my spirit? I submit my life to you. I lay myself down at the altar. A living sacrifice. You died for me so that I can live for you. Have your way with me. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. And if you, during this time, we're going to take offering a little bit later, but if you need prayer, can I have some of my elder couples stand up? A couple of you come up to the front, a couple of you at the back. If you need prayer for anything right now, please just don't be afraid of that. If you want to take a posture of surrender, we've got a lot of open space up here, and you're more than welcome to come and kneel down.